glorious fifth Sunday to be together. And this morning as we come to the, the word of the Lord, we're in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles, you'll find that on page 1202 in the Pew Bibles if you're using one of those. Our text today concludes the fourth contrast in explaining to us the superiority of Jesus' high priesthood over the earthly high priesthood of the Old Covenant. Each contrast has escalated in importance and each increased in both necessity and severity. It increased in necessity with respect to the necessity of accepting the truth revealed by the contrast. That is, there were greater and greater truths that were brought forward with each contrast. The first contrast of the two ministries, Jesus' heavenly ministry versus the earthly ministry of the high priests. The contrast of the tabernacles and the earthly tabernacle, that tent in the wilderness versus the heavenly tabernacle. And after that, we had the contrast of the covenants, the old covenant as it was referred to, the Mosaic covenant, versus the new covenant. And the indistinguishable tr contrast that exists there, the, the contrast that is, is so diverse and so amazing that we have no choice but to see the power that exists in it. And now, the contrast of the blood. And with each one of these, there was this greater need to grasp the truth and there was also a greater severity if one did not grasp that truth. Because with each one there became a further and further rejection of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as our author writes to this Hebrew believing audience in Rome, he conveys to them that they must recognize this new high priest. And that in that recognition, they must remove themselves from the old system which they have become so ingrained in. So as the intensity of the contrast continues to ramp up, so does the truth which is revealed regarding that contrast. Because of that, I've titled this last message of our fourth contrast of the blood, The Ultimate Manifestation of the Blood. The ultimate manifestation of the blood. Our text, as I mentioned, is in Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23. So follow along, please, as I read this text and we prepare ourselves for the ultimate manifestation of the blood. Hebrews 9 and verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, 
He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The ultimate manifestation of the blood. In our first messages in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 9, we introduce this idea of the contrast of the blood. And we recognize that there was a major difference between the presentation of the blood of the animals versus the blood of Christ. Jesus' presentation was made within a heavenly tabernacle versus the animal blood which was offered in that earthly tent. The, the contrast of ministries, that first contrast of, of the earthly ministry of the high priest and the heavenly ministry of Christ again being brought in. And we've seen our author throughout Hebrews bring these intricate discussions and bring back to our minds previous elements that he's focused on as he also introduces further topics. And we'll see that he does that as well as we move along. A beautiful recognition of all that is going on here. As we think of those distinctions we know that the animals provided only external cleansing of the worshiper. Even in the sacrificial system of the old days, as the text just told us in the previous verses, that it was only for bodily cleansing. It was only for transgressions against the law that had to do with things such as washing of the hands or other external rituals. It wasn't for the internal heart elements. But Jesus' blood provided complete cleansing, and not just cleansing bodily, but cleansing of the conscience. So no longer was there this continual understanding of guilt building up with sin, but there was the joy of the release of that sin, for Christ had paid the price. And therein the conscience was released from this burden of knowing the sin that exists in the flesh, which daily is a part of our lives. Of course, there is still the responsibility to deal with that, but there is that freedom to know that as we have dealt with it, he releases us. The second message then took us into verses 15 to 22, and with these verses, we moved from what the blood does to how it does it. And through that process, we understood that it was by mediation that Jesus worked through his blood to be the mediator between us and God. Taking God's righteous and necessary wrath, which we deserve upon himself. The other points that we noticed in these verses is what the effect of that mediation caused. Which was Christ's mediating work as it resulted in his death, resulted through that death in us becoming inheritors, fellow heirs with Christ, as we see elsewhere in the scripture. And there are so many blessings of that inheritance. For we saw that Christ owns all things, all are his. For he is the creator of everything. One aspect of our inheritance was that it was eternal in verse 15. But the greatest of these gifts 
was the forgiveness of our sins that we saw at the end of verse 22. And this comes to add down to us by way of application. But what we saw in our verses is that that forgiveness by Christ's blood applied to Old Testament Israel. Before Christ ever died, his redemptive work applied to the Old Covenant saints hundreds and thousands of years before he walked this earth with us. Stunning for us to recognize this truth. So we began by seeing what the blood does then it, and how it provided complete cleansing for us. And then we examined how it does it, namely through mediation, through Jesus standing in our stead. And in that mediation, we become inheritors of forgiveness. Well, that brings us to our final section in our text today. The ultimate manifestation of the blood. And our first point in that text, I've titled, The Initial Preparation. The initial preparation. Verse 23 begins this section and it connects us back to the previous verses we've just discussed. And it does this by the very first word, therefore. And it does it by the repeated word, these. Now that's important for us to understand that. So as we look again at verse 23 at the beginning, it says, therefore, it was necessary... For the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. Now, the therefore we're very familiar with. It immediately connects us to the section that previously existed. But it is that term these that draws our attention. How is it that, that these elements and what are these elements? Well, in describing the earthly tabernacle in this verse, it begins by talking about it as a copy. Copy in relation to the heavenly tabernacle. Now, that's not new language for us. In fact, back in chapter 8 and verse 5, we saw that same word copy used. And in fact, in that verse, it talked about a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things in reference to the tabernacle. So it was something that was similar. We understand a copy. We all know how a Xerox machine works or a, a copy machine. They were Xerox or if you go back as far as I do, mimeograph machines. And they made copies of the original. And that's what we're speaking about here. As Hebrews 8.5 talked about copy and shadow, that word shadow meant that there was a mystery that wasn't fully revealed in the earthly component, but yet the heavenly piece did not have that shadow. It was fully illumined and was the original. As we think about the symbolic representation, what we understand is that the weight of the discussion lies in the original. That's what's being pointed to here. But why does he use the word copies? And, and the phrase, the copies of the things in the heavens. When we read this, it seems awkward in our text. Why not simply refer to the earthly tabernacle, as he's done so often? Or one of the other phrases which he used to describe it. Well, we know from our study of this great book that there is tremendous importance in each word that our author uses. And he, the, he is very particular about his constructions. So there must be a reason for it. Well, we'll answer that question momentarily. So just make note of it for a moment. 
we also notice that these copies are being cleansed with these. The word these also refers back to the previous section, as I mentioned. And these being referenced are the blood of the animals. The fact that these is a, a plural pronoun confirms to us that it's speaking about the blood of the goats and calves as opposed to the singular blood of Jesus, which had he have been referring to that, he would have said this. Again, some, it, it's awkward construction, but it's purposeful. He wants to slow us down in our thinking, in our reading, and to recognize that there's something unique he's bringing to bear. The second half of the verse further illuminates the initial preparation where it says there, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Again, our word these comes up referencing the previous blood of the goats and the calves as we have discussed. But now the heavenly tabernacle is being compared to the earthly one. And that is the one which is the copy. And with this is a return to one of our former contrasts of the tabernacles. So he's already referenced us to the former contrast of ministries. Now again to the contrast of the tabernacles. Continuing to remind us. Now when you are, when you are teaching and learning about teaching, one of the first things that they will tell you is the key to learning is repetition. And the second thing they teach you is repetition is the key to learning. And so here our author is practicing these and bringing back to mind these former contrasts. Only the heavenly elements here require a better sacrifice for cleansing. Our author switches, notice, from blood to sacrifice. This seems a small change, and essentially it does mean the same thing. But this is our author's subtle way of introducing to us our next contrast, which is coming up in chapter 10, because it will be the contrast of sacrifices. Verse 23 almost seems like a restatement of what has already been covered. And although there is repetition, it also has some new information. The subject just completed in the previous verses is the cleansing of the earthly tabernacle with blood. And we talked about that, how the blood is taken, it's mixed with water. The hyssop, six to eight branches of hyssop are taken. And they're wrapped heavily with wool string, which becomes a sponge. It's dyed red to remind them of the blood. And then they are sprinkled and that wool becomes the mechanism by which more water is imparted so that the sprinkling can go on for a longer period between being dipped. So there was this need for this ritualistic cleansing with the blood. And now we're shown how if the earthly tabernacle, which is a copy, needed cleansing with blood, so also did the heavenly from which it came. This is one reason why the term copies is used. He wants to draw our attention back to the heavenly tabernacle. He wants us to see the parallels of these two systems. But this brings out another element. As Jesus' death brought redemption for the Old Testament saints, per verse 15, even before his death occurred, so also did his blood inaugurate the heavenly tabernacle before it was physically shed. Keep in mind 
that the original is necessarily standing before the copy. You can't have a copy before an original or you don't have an original. The heavenly tabernacle was existing before the earthly copy was made. It was functioning as well before that time. And as the blood inaugurated the copy through the animal's shed blood, so blood had to inaugurate the original, even though that blood would not be shed for thousands of years. There is an element here which we must also understand. It was not Jesus' physical blood that was needed to cleanse the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle. That was a spiritual cleansing which was understood as a result of what would occur through his physical shedding of blood on the cross at Calvary. There was no collecting of blood at that time to take it to the heavenly tabernacle. Some commentators have said Jesus went to heaven resurrected with a pail full of that blood that was captured. That's lunacy. This tabernacle was inaugurated well before that. The sacrifice was already understood because as God's plan is infallible and unchangeable, there was never a concern as to whether the perfect blood of Christ would be shed. It was as if that sacrifice had already occurred in the mind of God. The way that happens is because we live and we are constrained to this planet where time is essential to everything that we do. But God is outside of time. So the heavenly tabernacle existed beyond the scope of time and space. Therein it was as if the sacrifice had already occurred. The blood of Christ as if it had already been shed. Because you see, it was necessary for the heavenly sanctuary as it existed before the earthly one to be there because it had a function. The function of the earthly one was one in which it cleansed sin. And as the blood of animals, although only superficially covered the worshiper, as those entered heaven when they died, they also needed to be cleansed from that sin. So the heavenly tabernacle had that same function. We know that that is the case because there were many who died that were God's chosen people before the old covenant and before the old tabernacle. Those such as Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, just to name a few. Those whom Jesus confirmed were alive and not dead in Matthew 22 and 32. So the word copies is revealing a great deal for us. It's making us slow down. It's making us understand the parallels between the heavenly and the earthly tabernacle. And it's revealing to us the actual cleansing and that the function of the heavenly tabernacle and the earthly are the same. It is revealing what was the initial preparation. That is, the full manifestation was as yet to occur. Well, we understand this initial preparation even on this day. As we prepare for our fifth Sunday fellowship, many of you ladies have been initially preparing for this wonderful meal that we're going to partake of. My wife was up making this amazing orange cake, and she gave me full permission to go ahead and eat it, even though it's full of sugar and yummy stuff. So I'm going to do that, and I trust you will do the same. 
So we recognize that initial preparation. We're, we're about it all of our lives. And so also is that what happens as we begin this last section. Well, the initial preparation paved the way for the second point, And that second point is the eternal presentation. The eternal presentation in verses 24 to 26. Verse 24 begins by reminding us that the heavenly tabernacle was not built with human hands. This confirms for us the function of the heavenly tabernacle. And the question then arises, how does it confirm that function? Not made with hands. Well, it does so because it reminds us that the earthly tabernacle, again, as well as all the fixtures and implements, even the book itself needed cleansed with blood from verse 19. And the reason that they needed cleansed was because they were made with human hands. There was an inherent nature of sin in all that was made, even in that tabernacle which was dedicated to God. Therein it needed cleansed with the blood. So as we recognize that facet, we see the heavenly tabernacle was not built with human hands. So the question arises, why did it need cleansed? The answer explains the function of the heavenly tabernacle. You see, the purpose of both tabernacles was the same. It was to cleanse sin. So even though not built by human hands, the heavenly tabernacle still needed that cleansing with blood, only now a far superior blood. Exactly what the end of verse 23 told us. Then at the end of verse 24, the eternal presentation formally begins where it says there in the text in verse 24, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The literal rendering of this phrase is now to appear before the face of God. The word appear is a form of the word manifest. It is used three times in our text today, and it's where our title, the ultimate manifestation of the blood, comes from. Jesus' appearance in the presence of or before the face of God shows us that he has completed his sacrificial work. It is referring us back to the time where Christ was raised after his death and stood in the presence of the Father. He went there to stand, and this particular verb has the idea of revealing oneself or making oneself known. Although the Father knew all things perfectly, knew that this would happen, this was the formal presentation of the Savior having completed his work of redemption on the cross at Calvary. Dr. MacArthur notes this verb conveys Jesus' official presentation to report to the Father on the fulfillment of his mission. The concept of making an appearance or being revealed is involved in this incarnational appearance, end quote. The time of the action of the verb appears as past tense. And it is in one sense in that Jesus had done it past tense to the time of the writing of the book at around 65 AD. But it also has a continuous element. The Lord yet stands before the Father on our behalf. 
He had gone to present himself as the victor over sin. He yet is there telling all who would come that he has purchased redemption for us. We know from Revelation that Satan is there ever accusing the believers. Christ stands before the Father saying, No, I have purchased this one. And we are redeemed by that blood. And this Jesus did for us. The whole idea of substitutionary atonement is carried in this picture. This is Jesus standing in our stead, saying, yes, I know that one is a sinner, but my blood has paid the price for his sin. For he has received me as I have opened his eyes to the truth of my word. He has lived in light of that truth and he has sought to be obedient to me at all times in his life. A glorious understanding as Jesus came before the Father as the one who conquered death. What a, what a, one of the, indeed the most glorious scenes to the believer. For us to recognize that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are released, that we are seen now in the holy and righteous white raiments of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through that great exchange where he has taken our sin and given us his alien righteousness. What a beautiful consideration that therein we too conquer death. We come to God cleansed and redeemed. Sin is taken care of and it is all behind us at that time. Jesus is yet still at this very moment in the presence of the Father as Hebrews 7.25 confirms, which we've read, but let me reiterate it for you. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always living to make intercession for us. This is such a glorious truth. We are before the Father's eyes continually because of the work of the Son. Brilliant to recognize this gift. Verse 25 further describes the eternal presentation where it says, Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Just as Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands in verse 24, he also did not offer himself repeatedly. His sacrifice was once for all, for all offerings. And we'll see that expanded upon in the next verses. It's contrary to the high priest who entered often, namely yearly. And entered not with his own blood, but with the blood of animals. Jesus' sacrifice was far superior. It was eternal because it was once for all with his own blood. Verse 26 continues the thought process where it says, Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice is again highlighted in the contrast of the high priesthood. If he were like the high priest, he would have to continually offer himself from the foundation of the world even and never achieve the full atonement which his once-for-all sacrifice accomplished. 
But this is not the case. His sacrifice was complete. And the implication of the time frame since the foundation of the world, it reveals another detail of his sacrifice. Namely, that it had been effective for all of those who would believe upon him since the foundation of the world. Not only is it effective for the church, as Romans 5.8 and 2 Corinthians 5.21 tell us, but his death is also for all the Old Testament saints, as we saw back in verse 19 and previously mentioned, and even effective for all of those before the Old Covenant, since the foundation of the world. The author here references suffering, and so we've moved from the blood to the death to suffering. And in these, the full scope of Jesus' passion is brought before us. There is the idea of his blood, which we discussed, as began to be shed at Gethsemane through his great praying and anguish in which through the, his blood became mixed with his sweat and came out as great droplets, as Luke tells us. It continued through Gabbatha, through the pavement, where he was whipped, and that cat of nine tails ripped the flesh from him, and ultimately to Golgotha, to the cross, where that blood was shed, and in that then his death, and now his suffering, so that we are brought to remember all that he had done. Beloved, we can never forget what our Savior has done for us. The power of the suffering of Christ is something that can never leave our mind. For we are free through what was the most horrific and ignominious death, torture, and shedding of blood that could ever be considered. What a glorious truth we live in and by. The converse reality is then stated at the end of verse 26 where it says, But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The once-for-all nature of Jesus' suffering is pictured as of primary importance. And the eternal presentation is not repeated year by year. It did not happen often since the foundation of the world, but it occurred now at the consummation of the age. This phrase references the end of all time up to that point. All epics, all eras come to a conclusion at this point. And it inaugurated a new time. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ began a new time, a new era. It conveys to us something completely different is now going on. The old covenant has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His death has brought that to consummation. And now the new covenant is inaugurated, just as he told the disciples at the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. And drink it as remember as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There, there is this, this continual reminder of what Christ has done. That once for all nature of what he's brought about. But it occurred now at the consummation. This Greek compound word means literally the, with the end. Or with conclusion. That is that word consummation in your New American Standard Bibles. And yet also it indicates a new beginning. 
it's very much like our English word commencement. When we go to a high school graduation, we often don't call it a graduation, but a commencement. Because it is an end of a time in that young man or woman's life, and it is a beginning of that which is yet to go ahead. The very same idea is before us in the word consummation. One commentator notes regarding this, all the eras and ages came together and were consummated in the coming of the Messiah. The eschatological era was inaugurated. This is the beginning of the New Testament and it is the new work of God with man. And it is that which we live in. It is the blessing which we come here as his church to focus on his word and to rejoice in. Now for the second time our word manifest occurs. Again, the same root as back in verse 24 where it was translated appear. As Jesus appeared before God for us in verse 24, now he has been manifested or has been revealed to put away sin. The past tense action is again looking back to the cross. Back to Jesus' blood and to his suffering and his death. Back to the act which affected for all time forward redemption. And thus the consummation of the ages. As we've seen also for all time backward as well as all time forward. And this came by the sacrifice of himself. This is why this is an eternal presentation. As he sacrificed himself literally through his sacrifice indicating the mechanism by which he put away sin his substitutionary death on the cross this is indeed the eternal presentation christ having been manifested to put away sin through his sacrifice the initial preparation revealed christ's sacrificial cleansing of the heavenly tabernacle. The eternal presentation showed his appearance in heaven for all time and the manifestation of his sacrifice to put away sin eternally. This from all time past and for all time future. And now our third point takes us to our final aspect of the ultimate manifestation of the blood. And that third point is the irrefutable revelation. The irrefutable revelation in verses 27 and 28. And it begins with the undeniable reality of man's existence and all that we go through on this earth in verse 27. Look at that with me. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Well, we all recognize the reality of death. That none of us are getting out of this life alive. Now there are those very few exceptions and some would take point, well what about Enoch and what about Elijah? And yes, they did. And, and when it says that men died once, some would say, well what, well what about Lazarus and the few others that were raised from the dead? Yes, they did die twice. So we can take that handful of men and say that there is a unique consideration in a very few lives. But for the rest of us, we are those who will die. It is certain. It's also a certainty that judgment will follow immediately. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For the unbeliever, their judgment is described in Revelation 20 and verses 11 to 15. It's what we know as the great white throne judgment. 
just to read a portion of that beginning in the middle of verse 13. It says in Revelation 20 and 13, And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what Mark talks about in Mark chapter 9 and verse 48 as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Those who are cast into hell, as we refer it, being given eternal bodies that are prepared to be eaten continually, having their flesh continually stripped by worms and to regrow and to live in the eternal darkness of the fire of hell. For the believer, judgment is in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat is the translation of the Greek word bima, relating to the old uh, Olympic Games or Adjumean Games, where one who was the judge would sit on a high podium and would give the rewards to those who participated and to those who won in those ancient Greek games. So also is it here for the believer. We will not receive the punitive judgment as those who are being cast into hell. We will be looked at with regards to the deeds which we have done, good or bad, and we will be given reward. Judgment is not always punitive. It can be reward, and so it is here. There's no pause, beloved, between death and judgment. One goes immediately from exhaling in this life to the presence of God to face that judgment. There is no extended period where the soul awaits his judgment, either for the believer or the unbeliever. All are ushered immediately into the presence of the Lord, as Philippians 2.10 and 11 describe, where it says in Philippians 2.10, so, so at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone is immediately translated to heaven where they will bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer then enters into heaven. The unbeliever is banished forever apart from the Lord. It's an incredible consideration for us. And Paul confirms this instantaneous transmission from death to eternity in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, where he says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are immediately translated to God's presence. Verse 28 concludes the irrefutable revelation where it says, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Verse 28 is parallel to verse 27, and they are significantly contrasted one against the other. Verse 27 says men die once, Verse 28, Christ did not merely die, but he was offered once. 
For men, the reason for their death is sin. But with Christ, his death was to take away sin. He bears the sin apart from us. The sins of many, as the text tells us. Usually when scripture speaks of the covering of sin of all men, it makes clear in the same context that those coverings are only effective for those to whom it has been given, those who are the elect. In this case, the many, in verse 28, is qualifying the covering of the sins which we saw for all Israel and have been indirectly referenced in the previous verses. At death, men receive judgment. But Jesus will appear a second time after death. Here's our third time the word manifestation or appear occurs. Again, same root as verse 24 and 26. The two previous usages were past tense and then present. And now, a future verb. Jesus will appear. He will be manifested again. This is the irrefutable revelation Namely, Jesus' second coming, my beloved. Jesus will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. What's he talking about there? Well, it's the same thing that we see in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is that future coming salvation that is awaiting us. The inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. That which is now reserved in heaven for you, but which you do not yet fully know. That which is, rever re is now being revealed in this last time. That we have the reservation that is awaiting us. It is a present reality. That we are saved and there is the joy in this life. There is the peace in this life. There is the understanding of the victory over sin in this life. But as we go to be with the Lord, it will be magnified so much more greatly. No longer will the consequences of sin and the effect that continually burden us be part of our lives. They will be shed forever. And we will be with Him in perfection. A future fulfillment of perfect salvation. That's what he is talking about in this text when he says he will come a second time for a salvation. And that salvation is without reference to sin, revealing the complete eradication of sin that occurs when he comes for his chosen ones. But it is those to whom he has called. It is those to have come who have received the gift of life. And the question becomes, is that you? Are you those who, when he comes, will receive that eternal salvation? Have you recognized your sin? That you must turn from that sin and live a life of obedience to God? Do you realize that there is a punishment that will be paid? That God is just and holy and righteous, and he must judge sin. And in that judgment, you will either pay for your own sin 
which you will pay for for all eternity apart from God in this horrific place of hell, or you will allow the Lord Jesus Christ to pay it. And you will receive the free gift which he has offered. And today, if you do not know that truth, I would call you to come to understand the truth of Jesus Christ. To recognize the power of the gospel. That you are a sinner and that sin separates you from all eternity from God. To turn from that and come to him. To live in light of the power of his word. But it will be, notice at the end of verse 28, for those who eagerly await him. Those earnestly expecting that salvation. Not like those who are asleep when the thief comes, as 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us. Or like the virgins who did not have their lamps trimmed and ready when the master came. You see, the idea of eagerly awaiting, it's often portrayed in Scripture. And we understand it well. We've spoken often about children at Christmas time or birthdays and their anticipation of those gifts. That is an inkling of the eagerly awaiting, the eager anticipation that we are to have. Scripture speaks about it in Romans 8 19, where it talks about the whole creation eagerly awaiting its deliverance. It's being freed from the sin of man by which we shed one another's blood and it must receive the blood of that sin. Romans 8.23 says, believers eagerly await their adoption as sons. Here is a picture that we're talking about. Romans 8.25 further says, believers wait eagerly with perseverance for that which they do not yet see. These are the attitudes that convey our eager awaiting. And this begs the question, beloved, is this us? Are you waiting eagerly for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it something that you think about often? Not, not every few weeks as you run into the topic, but is this frequently, perhaps even daily, even more so repeatedly through the day, is this on your mind? Beloved, the reason this becomes so important is because as you expectantly await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, you solidify in your heart and in your mind your trust in God's sovereign plan. You're able to release your grip and your control upon the things of this earth. And it allows you to manifest that peaceful fruit of righteousness as you recognize God's perfect plan in all things, the good and the bad. In our text today, we've addressed that ultimate manifestation of the blood. And that manifestation is the thrice-repeated appearance of Jesus, that past, that present, and that future. And all of these refer to seeing or this visual manifestation. There's a, a, a visual presence throughout our text well, that brings up to mind a familiar statement. A statement I think we all know and have related to well at some point in our lives. And that simple statement is that hindsight is twenty twenty. We all know that, don't we? The indication that we don't always see clearly what's going on in our lives when there is a, a particular situation that we're in. But later down the road, we're able to see much more clearly and understand more than we did during that event. My beloved brothers and sisters, this is one time 
when that statement of hindsight being 2020 is unacceptable. Because in this case, that statement would lead to ultimate destruction. Because when we get down the road from salvation, many recognize that the road is no longer available. They can no longer recognize the path that has been shown to them. Beloved, today is the day that you must recognize this truth. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the hour at which God is calling to everyone as he delays his returning judgment. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as Lord, it's time for you to realize this ultimate manifestation of Christ. Additionally, if you're here and, and that eager anticipation of his second coming is not in your life, you need to rectify that situation. Your faith must grow. Your love and obedience to Christ must flourish where his return is ever upon your mind. When you see the things of darkness in our world that are all about us, threats uh, of world violence and issues that may or may not affect us, and that is when we release those to the Lord and recognize that if this is the time, so be it. Because Christ is in control. He is in charge of everything that is going on. There are no random molecules upon this planet. If there's going to be nuclear war that starts, you can bet that God is in charge. He knows what's going on and we need not fear. We need to do one thing. Be more fervent for Christ. Carry forth the message of the gospel. Speak to everyone you can find. Do not be silent. We want none to be cast for all eternity apart from him. And one thing is absolutely clear, my beloved brothers and sisters, that the hour of Christ's return is coming ever closer. And therein, we must be ever more faithful. What a glorious truth for us to recognize. It's a good time for us to recognize and rejoice in that one day it will be yet infinitely more glorious than we know now. Beloved, our, our Lord, His desire for us is to imitate and to have a growing relationship with Him. And this is available to us today. And that availability is made clear in our text through the ultimate manifestation of His blood. May this be the desire of your hearts. May the power of this word penetrate and encourage and strengthen you. And may we go out as a greater force for the kingdom of Christ as a result of being together today.